How often do people want to look intently at someone who's more beautiful than they? Like someone who is fantastically more attractive, beautiful. Uh, do you desire to intently look? I guess sometimes we do out of curiosity. Move that to a, a photograph of a bunch of people and you're in that photograph. Someone shows it to you. Who do you look at first? Well, generally, if it's me, I look at me and see how good I look compared to others. <laughs> well, why do we do that? Well, it's, we're concerned about how we look. And, uh, for instance, on social media, people aren't posting. We know this. People aren't posting their ugliest pictures up there on Facebook. Um, we have our own tricks and ways of uh, trying to make ourselves look good. Um, and when you look at Christ as we're supposed to, you're looking at the most beautiful person that the world has ever seen. And when you look at him, you're going to see also in that reflection yourself. Because, you know, he's your Lord. He's the standard by which we're supposed to live. And we know this. And so we look at the standard and then we see our own. And it's very easy to turn away out of shame, out of regret, and... God has got ways to get you to keep looking. Despite the fact that he is the most beautiful person in the world and you're far from it. And uh, while he shows you all your flaws, because when you see him, you're gonna, your flaws are going to come into uh, focus. Uh, and uh, fortunately, not all at once. But over time, more and more of them are going to be revealed. You know, you'll think you're never going to be done with it. You're like, oh, that's wrong with me. And then that gets fixed. And, you know, here's another one and another one. God has ways in which he's going to convince you and me to look at the most beautiful person in the world, even though he shows us our flaws. So let's begin again in 2 Thessalonians 2, and let's open up in prayer. Being grateful for God's word and for the... A wonderful extent to which he reveals himself uh, perfectly and sufficiently in his text so that we can learn and grow in grace and knowledge. With that, let's pray. Father, thank you for the freedom and the liberty that comes from looking into your word. We know that when we look in your word, we're looking at your son because it's his mind. The word is him. He is the living word. And so, Father, by your spirit, we see we are, however wonderfully and graciously revealed that we are your sons, that we are forgiven, sons and daughters who are forgiven that we are heirs, that we are members of the family, that we are free and forgiven, and that you, Father, uh, will always love us. You call us your beloved. Nothing will separate us from your love. We are not condemned by you. And though at times, Father, we're completely ashamed of who we are when we look at the pure holiness of your Son, we thank you that you keep us looking by your grace and mercy and forgiveness and your call. We ask, Father, that through your spirit that we would see more of him today. And we ask in Christ's name, amen. So <clears throat> we need to see the purity of Christ's glory. As if we don't, we'll be deceived into thinking that the flesh and the world are good enough. Or that we're stuck with it. You know, this is the best it's going to be. You know, whatever you're stuck with. And that's not true. Uh, we're to look in this image and how we see this glory and what we do with it when we see it will transform us into the same image. And that's the promise. It's a guarantee, actually, for every believer. We're predestined to it. But now in time, and we'll start with that here today, that we have this already but not yet mystery that we live in in the church age, that we're not really... We know that we're not conformed to the image of Christ just yet. We're predestined to it, and we're also seeking it in time. And, you know, what we have in position, say sanctified, we're seeking to be sanctified or live sanctified, even though we are sanctified. We long to sit with Christ in heavenly places. The Bible says that we're already there. 
But we look around and see that we're not. And so how do we see his glory and how will it transform us into the same image? It's a vital question that we're going to answer. So if you see Christ's glory, you will experience shame and regret over yourself. And this we'll see in James chapter 1, where James says, don't look away. Don't leave that mirror and forget what you saw. If you do not look away, but look intently, Christ will draw you into the likeness of himself. That is a promise. If you see him, you'll be like him. But you have to see him. You say, well, don't all Christians see him? They do not. They do not. Do all Christians who are looking at the Bible see him? No. Because they look away. And I mean, they may be physically reading it, but in their hearts, they're not. They're not looking. And we have to look. Although, again, I refer to Psalm 1. I referred to that yesterday, that the, the righteous person uh, meditates on the law of God day and night. And that's opposed to the wicked who doesn't do that and meditates on it. doesn't mean I'm perfect. I can meditate on the law of God or the word of God day and night. It's my standard by which I live. It is the and one and only truth. And I um, can look at it. It doesn't mean I'm perfect, but it is my standard. And I'm not afraid to look at it, even though it shows me what I am. So uh, 2.13, 2 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul now shifts gears. He leaves eschatology and returns to the present age. And he says, but we should always give thanks, should there means ought to. Uh, that's a word that means he's obligated to give thanks to God, not to them, but to God for them. So we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, loved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for, from the beginning, or first fruits, that you are chosen as first fruits, for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit. We would say that's the baptism of the Spirit, and faith in the truth. It was for this that he called you through our gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, with this glory, there's a so then, now, so there's Hina here in verse 15. Hina is a Greek is all over the New Testament. It shows clauses that are either purpose for this or grounds for that and stuff like that. Here it's a purpose. It's a so then, brethren, because you see the glory of God, because you're saved, because you're sanctified, stand firm and hold to the traditions. We'll see the traditions are the truths taught. Uh, and so that's what's coming. But first we have to make sure that we understand that we have, to, we have gained this glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have it. It's there for you to look at, but you might not look at it. And so we have to make sure that we do. Those who believe the gospel are saved, sanctified, and given the glory of God to behold for the rest of their lives and for the rest of eternity. It's yours. And so that's this conundrum that we have in the church. I call it mystery of church eschatology is, well, okay, we're already there, but we're not yet there. We're sanctified, but not yet. We're glorified, but not yet. We're holy, but it eh, doesn't look like it, but we are. And there's this, also with this, in this passage, there's this glory that we see, and there's Several passages, even in Thessalonians itself here in chapter 1, that says we're going to see this glory when he comes again. So is that what Paul means? Well, yeah, he does, but we also see in other passages that we're to see his glory now. So which one is it? And it's both. Uh, <clears throat> so already, but not yet. Look at Second Thessalonians 1.10. when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Right? That day is the day of the Lord. That is the second coming of Christ, which is a part of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord starts at the, um, the tribulational period and continues through, you know, it depends on the theologian, but it continues through uh, the millennial, millennial age to the final judgment. And all of that is that day. It's the day that is 
prophesied to come. And, you know, we see here that he comes to be glorified in his saints. And so he's glorified by us. We marvel at him, which is to glory in him. And that's future. Right? It's clearly future. And a couple more, Colossians 3, 4, when Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. So revealed is what? This is epiphania, that word that means to reveal. It's in our passage as well. And, um, you know, we will be revealed with him in glory. But in this passage as well, just before this, Paul says, keep seeking your life that is hid with Christ in heavenly places. So should I wait? Or should I seek now? And the answer is both. First uh, Peter 4.13 To the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. And it's in this passage in verse 12 that says, Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you that's come upon you for your testing. But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. Because at his second coming, you're going to rejoice with exultation that you had glorified him. When you suffered, you kept your eyes on him. When you suffered, you didn't look away. You kept looking in that mirror. You kept beholding the glory of God. And even in that suffering, you know you fell flat on your face at least once, maybe a bunch of times. But you got up and looked in the mirror. And say, yeah, I failed. But the one in the mirror says, I died for you. The one in the mirror says, I love you. The one in the mirror says, I've forgiven you. Of all things, keep looking at me. Be like me. And you did. God, God Almighty, you weren't perfect at it. <laughs> but you did. You went for it. You glorified him. So is this, is Peter talking about at the second coming of Christ or is he talking about, well, the revelation of his glory now? Uh, maybe at a second, maybe when you die. I mean, there's three, actually three possibilities here. When you die, you see him face to face is the revelation of his glory. His second coming is the revelation of his glory. Or now, as you look intently in the mirror and you glory is transferred to glory. Peter didn't answer that. Neither does God. But we see in various passages that all are true. So we know that we're to behold his glory now. And we are given insight into what it is that we're supposed to see. This is very helpful. Because what if we say, yeah, I've been looking intently at the glory of Christ, but I don't see any changes in my life. Either you're not looking at his glory, or you think you are, and you're deceived. Now, we spent, was it last week, the week before, we talked a lot about being deceived. Because we were looking at the Antichrist who deceives the whole world. And we can be deceived. And when we're deceived, we believe things that are false. They might not be obviously false. But that leads to me having certain opinions about myself and opinions about God that are false. It leads me to think that I can do things that I shouldn't. And it leads me to sin. And as James said, if I sin continues, it brings forth death and no, I, I'm not seeing him. So I may think I'm seeing him, but I'm not. Or I may be uh, willfully not looking at all. Now, as our passage says, every believer in Christ is saved. Every believer in Christ is sanctified by the Holy Spirit and faith in the truth. Every believer is graciously given the glory of Christ to behold, both now and on into eternity. A key passage for beholding him now is in 2 Corinthians 3. So let's return there. I just want to look at that again. We looked at it yesterday. And to remind you of the context, this is Paul's great struggle in his ministry. That's the context of it. Paul was attacked, pestered. Uh, maligned even by those in Corinth. He suffered physically. He suffered mentally through privation, through rejection. Now, of course, it wasn't all suffering. There were great successes in his ministry. But Paul understood something, and this is something that we almost understand as we look into the 
word of God or the image of Christ is that Paul understood that the glory of Christ was his ministry. That was his ministry. And whatever your spiritual gift is, whatever ministry God has given you, that is your ministry. You are revealing the glory of Christ as it is reflected to you to others. So when you serve others, that's for the glory of Christ. You're revealing the glory of Christ. And and if you're doing it that way, which is the only way to do it, then any personal differences, any hang-ups, any personality, they all fade away. The spiritual condition of the other person, believer, unbeliever, all of that goes to the side as you are witnessing what you want to get right is not your evaluation of the person. It's basically impossible. But as you're serving another, what you want to get right is that you show Christ purely and truly. That you're doing what you're doing is unto the Lord. So if I'm comforting, I'm showing Christ. What if they say no to my comfort? I was talking to somebody the other day about reconciliation. Oftentimes a person gets right with God and they'll go to the people that they've sinned against in the past and they'll want to say, you know, I I realize what I've done. I'm sorry for what I've done. And they they need to get the shame off their chest. I, I agree with this. It's not absolutely necessary before God for forgiveness. You're forgiven by the blood of Christ. But what if you go to someone and say, I'm sorry, and then they turn around and say to you, well, I don't forgive you. And they say, uh, and they're in the wrong for that, but say they, they do. They say, lose my number. Don't call me again. Well, you could, res- you could react to that in a way that's sinful. Uh, so what have you missed there if you do? That this is about you portraying the glory of Christ. If you went up to someone and said, you know, I, I really blew it and I'm sorry. You've now given them the opportunity. You've actually opened up an opportunity for them to reconcile with you. Right? So you've actually brought Christ into the midst of your relationship and said, look, we can reconcile. Now, if they say no, well, that's their problem. They've, they've been shown Christ and they looked away. But you didn't. But now if you respond with anger or bitterness or whatever, then you looked away and you both looked away. So as far as in Paul's ministry, the, his, the glory of his ministry is Christ alone. And so when he rolls into a town, if they accept him or if they stone him to death, that's not on him. This is stated over and over again, like it makes me think of, uh, when Samuel got very upset at Israel for asking him for a king, and God said to Samuel, they haven't rejected you, they've rejected me. Give them the king that they want. But you're not being rejected here. So success is, for all of us, in showing Christ truly and purely. So God is going to convince you to look into the mirror of the glory of Christ and keep looking and looking intently And one of the ways he's going to convince you of looking at the most beautiful person in the world, even though he's going to continually show you your flaws, is that Christ's glory is far more valuable than your own. And you're going to be convinced of that. It's his glory that's important, not mine. And so if my reputation gets tarnished with other people or... Uh, they reject me or persecute me or put me down or ridicule me or mock me. You know, it's not my reputation that's all that important here, is it? And if I'm going to keep showing the reputation of Christ to the world, I cannot take my eyes off of this mirror. i got to keep looking. Because as I do, he's going to transform me. So, if Paul's ministry was um, deemed successful by his acceptance or, say, his personal success, we have a case for saying that Paul failed miserably. He says in uh, 2 Timothy 1.15, his last letter that he wrote, all in Asia have forsaken me. That means all Ephesus, Colossae, 
we don't we don't have the text doesn't show how that all went down but all we have is in his last letter he says all who are in asia asia have turned away from me then he uh and he died in prison it doesn't seem like a successful ministry he died in prison and in the very next verse, after he said, all in Asia have turned away from me, he uh, intimates or suggests that many of his converts were ashamed of his chains. He says, Onesiphorus was not ashamed of my chains. 2 Timothy 2.16. So Paul understood that his whole ministry was not about his personal success, but the one who had already succeeded. In the most amazing endeavor imaginable, God becomes a man lives a sinless life, despite being tempted in all things, raises up 12 men to carry on a ministry and build a church that goes worldwide. He dies on the cross for the sins of the whole world after being tortured more than any man ever in the history of mankind. And then he walks out of the grave three days later to ascend and to sit at the right hand of the Father as God and man. That's pretty incredible. There's no words for that to describe that. By doing this, because he suffered, the veil was torn. In Hebrews it says, as his flesh was torn, the veil was torn. And as the veil is torn, the analogy is very clear. The veil is in front of the Holy of Holies where the glory of God resides. Now that the veil is torn, we can look in. God gave himself in the most incredible way possible so that we... His enemies could see his glory. In Hebrews 9, it says we live there in the glory of the Holy of Holies. No, this is all true about you. Whether you look or you don't look. God doesn't say I'm holding any of this back based on your performance. This is unconditional. That's why the new covenant does not depend, like the old covenant, which is the Mosaic law, depended upon performance. Either you kept it or you didn't. But this new covenant in his blood is unconditional. It's yours. Forever. So, what happens when we seek glory in the wrong places? What is, we'll just take the Apostle Paul. So, for instance, and he did this for, we infer this, because when he's asking God to take the thorn out of his flesh... He's asking God for something else than God's will, right? So Paul's seeking glory in, you know, my ministry would be more successful if I didn't have this hang-up, whatever it was. And God says, uh-uh. <laughs> you can't have a successful ministry without it. Because you've got to learn something, Paul, that when you're weak, you're strong. And that's only when you're strong. When you're weak, in other words, you can't bring any of your own ingenuity and energy to the table. You can only bring me because you really don't have anything of you that's valuable. And it's not that we you know, lose our consciousness in this. It's just that by our own choices and consciousnesses, that's not a word, is it? But uh, that we plug in to the wisdom and power of God by his spirit and his word. And that's all by faith. So Paul says, I don't seek my own glory. Jesus said, I don't seek my own glory. Paul said in verse 5 here, if you look at uh, 2 Corinthians 3, 5, he says, I am not adequate and that nothing came from me. The Holy Spirit, he said, gives life and that's a life. That we see now in verses 17 and 18 that it's by the Spirit that we see. So without the Holy Spirit, you can't see. Therefore, you have to be a believer baptized by the Spirit and indwelt by the Spirit, filled with the Spirit in order to see. And all of us can be filled with the Spirit so as to see. <clears throat> so Paul here makes the case, too, that the Mosaic Law had glory, and it did but it didn't fulfill the glory that we craved because as in Moses' face, when he went and saw God on the mountain, his face lit up and then his face faded. 
as he left the presence of God. And the people noticed this. And so there was another glory that came. So, how, so we could seek for glory in the law. Paul makes a great case out of this in many of his letters. That we can't be justified by the law. The law is fulfilled. It hasn't gone away. It's been fulfilled by Christ and therefore fulfilled by us. The ethics of the law are still ours. But we carry out those ethics from a position of fulfillment. Not seeking to fulfill, but being fulfilled. Colossians 2.10 says we're completing Christ. Complete. That's the word filled. It's pleiroo. It means filled. You're good. So you can pursue the things of the law. Like, don't commit adultery. Right? Still against the law in the church age. Uh, you can do things that are uh, love your neighbor. And Jesus said, yeah, but you guys took this as hate your enemy. But I say to you, he does that four times in Matthew 6, 5 and 6. No, they're all in Matthew 5. I say, but I say to you. Don't even look at a woman to lust for her. Right? So what does this mean? It means the ethics of the law have become a reality from a fulfilled point of view that, no, I don't go out on my wife or my husband, but also I don't even look at another. Because I'm completely committed to my commitment, which are the rules of heaven. And, uh, yeah, we don't always get that right. But it is our standard. As we look into the mirror of the glory of Christ, we say, that's my standard. And what are we going to be revealed? Well, maybe yesterday I did look at a woman or a man, if I'm a woman. Or, or, or well, I may, somebody may have, Christians have temptations to homosexuality. Should you stop looking at Christ because you're disgusted by yourself? Heck no. He's the only cure, and I do mean cure. Christ said, I came to set you free, not keep you in bondage. I came, I made you a new creature. It's a new life. Not the old life that you're still working on to improve. It's new. You, I, Jesus has the cure for all of these things that we see in this mirror. So the Old Testament scriptures didn't leave anybody in the dark. Though the glory of the Old Testament scriptures was one that would fade. And even the Jews knew this. Um, by the time Christ came, Israel had a eschatology, meaning a, a, a view of the future or the last days. But their eschatology was so simple. They had two dispensations. I'm a person who loves simplicity. I've seen people, they get like ten dispensations, some have five, some have seven, whatever. But they had two. They had this age and the age to come. This age, the current age, and the age of the Messiah. So it wasn't, when Jesus said, I'm the Christos or Messiah, it wasn't, they, they weren't rejecting the concept of Messiah. They heartily believed in Messiah. And that the Messiah would come and establish a new age. So it was clear. My point I want to make from that is that the Old Testament made it clear that there was a person to come, a Messiah to come, that was going to make everything right. And so the law faded, but someone was coming. Just like Moses' face faded, someone was coming who wouldn't fade. That wouldn't be Moses. And they knew this. They believed this. They still do, actually. What they rejected was Christ as Messiah. They rejected him. That Jesus, this carpenter from Nazareth, with no formal education, could not be him. So how does he perform his miracles, though? How did he cast a demon out of a man who can't speak? How did he raise someone from the dead who had been dead four days? How did he heal a man born blind? These are all messianic miracles. They said, well, there's only one way he could have done that. 
the devil gave him the power. As I said, Matthew 12, uh, as if the devil could actually even do any of that. So anyway, 2 Corinthians 3.17. The, uh, the law had a glory that faded, but here comes Christ. And this is what Paul magnifies above all else in 2 Corinthians 3.17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Now liberty means freedom. And we have, you know, what is our freedom? But we all, with an unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. So we have the Spirit here mentioned, what, three times in one sentence, right? So he's emphasized in that by the Spirit of the Lord, there is freedom. The scripture also says that we're the Lord's slaves. I mean, what is freedom? In in the world, and people love freedom. People love it. Um, Even in all the slavery in the ancient world, and there was a lot. Uh, By the way, you couldn't even tell a person was a slave. It wasn't, you know, uh, uh, limited to one race. You know, slaves from all over the place. As the Romans conquered the world, they, they took slaves from Egypt, Greece, and North Africa, from the Far East. They had slaves of all shapes and sizes and colors. And, uh, but every one of them wanted to be free. Um, so what is the liberty here? The liberty is the freedom to look at the Lord. Where did all those slides go? Hmm. Interesting. Uh, and there's my chess piece. I love this picture. That's why I kept it again. Uh, the, you know, this is your liberty. You don't have the freedom to do anything you want. That's a false concept of freedom. That's why I mentioned that. People in our day and age love freedom, and they think that freedom is, I can change my gender, I can sleep with everybody, anybody I want, when I want, uh, my free, I can do whatever I want, when I want. Not freedom. But wait a minute. Doesn't that just sound like freedom? Well, you know, walking in front of a bus is freedom. A speeding one. Right? I, you know, killing yourself with something is freedom, basically. But, it, you know, if the, the end result is that you're a slave to something... How is that freedom? If you become an addict to something, are you free now? If you're dead, are you free now? <laughs> right? You, you couldn't be more enslaved. You're in a hole in the ground, unable to move or see or touch or feel anymore. No, it's not free. If the thing that you think is freedom is leaving in you into a cage, then that's not freedom. But there's one, and it's him. That truly gives me freedom. He gives me the freedom to see God. Now, if I can see God, then what? where does that lead me? Is that a cage? Come on. Right? This is, it leads you to eternity. The new heaven and new earth. The possibilities that even in this fallen body, that I can glorify Christ and see Him, and be a light of him that reflects to the world that actually Christ lives in me. As Paul says, Galatians 2.20, it's a beautiful passage. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Yeah, that's freedom. Now, none of that's going to happen. If when you look, you look away. It's not going to happen. Everything that I just said for the last few minutes is just the most marvelous thing that anybody could ever have in their whole lives. And it's not going to happen if when you look, you look away. And when you look away, what I mean by that is what James is going to faithfully tell us, that I don't do it. I look at it. I heard it. I don't do it. And then you're, you're not free. You say, I'm free. Yeah, you're free from God, I guess. 
You're free from the commands of God. Where does that lead you? Where has that ever led any of us? I mean, I've done it. I've done it for too long. Had done it for too long. This led me into slavery, more slavery. And it was self-deceived slavery. It's kind of the worst kind. You know, I have my, here's my, I haven't used my props in a while, but here they are. That's what you're doing. You're putting your own hands in the cuffs. No one's slapping them on you. You are free. Christ set you free. He broke your chains, and then you put your hands right back in some chains. And it's just stupid. But all of us have done it. Use more props. <laughs> I was going to take my phone out now. Now you pray. I've got to organize my props and get more. Anyway, so what are some of the things that we see? It's, uh, I underlined some here because obviously this is a short list. But all of these passages have the word glory in them. So that's why I chose them. The glory of the Father in Hebrews 1.3. Jesus is the glory of the Father. The exact image of the Father. Hebrews 1.3. In John 2.11, by the way, in John 2.11 is where he performed his first miracle, or John 2. In the wedding feast of Cana, he changes water into wine. And he says there, or the Apostle John says there, that that was a act of grace and power. I mean, obviously power to transform something into a completely different substance. But gracious, Jesus, they ran out of wine. And he said to, he said to his mother, who told him this, that my hour hasn't come yet. What is that between us? This has nothing to do with me that they run out of wine. That's their fault. It's basically, he's saying to Mary, that's their fault. It's not mine. But he makes enough. By our account, he makes over 100 gallons of the best wine that anybody ever had in Palestine, that's for sure. So grace and power. Power over death, John 11.4 and 11.40. What happens in John 11? He raises Lazarus from the dead. You know, his friend that was dead four days in John 17:22 in his priestly prayer he says his glory is the unity of divine love. And that's amongst us. You and I love for one another in agape love. And then in Colossians 1:27 Christ in you the hope of glory is heaven's riches. Now these are just a few and the reason why there are a few is because the glory of Christ speaks of his nature his person, and his work. So, I mean, the list, we could go on and on and on and on. But those are passages that don't actually have the word glory in them. But we know what glory means. So it's every characteristic of him. Now, this person whose glory you're looking at is not distant from you. It's not like saying, wow, that's an amazing man. I wish I knew him. You know, that, that could be. That's, God is so amazing, but he's so far away. But this is not true for us. We're in union with him. This repeated phrase throughout the New Testament is in Christ, right? So we're in union with him. We're not witnessing someone that we have no part with. We're his bride. But take these for example. And you say, well, yeah, I have intently been looking at the mirror of the word of God. And, and here's where you get challenged now. If you don't find that you praise the Father for his glory, I don't mean just because someone tells you you should, but you do. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed and sanctified be your name. That's a praise. Praise is an, uh, an honor and a love and an adoration for who someone is. Do you? Do I? Ask yourself if you've been looking at the Lord's glory or not. If you haven't really been praising God's glory, and however, you know, that doesn't mean you walk around. Some people think they just say praise God at the end of every sentence or they just say it multiple, multiple times a day. Maybe you do. That's Whatever you think is, you know, that's between you and God. God doesn't give us a formula on how to praise him. 
And some people think it's singing songs and waving the hands. But And if you do that, that's fine too if you want to do that. But, um, you know, you, you could just do that because it's a ritual. This is adoration. And it, it couldn't happen every second of every day, but it should happen. And I think you know what I mean. Uh, this morning... Uh, I was walking Maggie to school this morning where I was looking for uh, her little umbrella. She was like, Maggie's like, Let, now, the, the school is two blocks away. Two. It's on, and to walk her there, it's just fun. And it's raining. So Maggie's like, let's, let's drive. I'm like, no, we live in Oregon. You walk in the rain in Oregon. Or you don't walk all winter. <laughs> Fall and winter, it seems like. So um, anyway, I go to get her umbrella, and Chris's point is like right there, and I'm, I'm like, no, it's not. This is pretty typical, right? Especially with girls pointing out things. You, you guys have better eyes than we do, but uh, she's like, it's right there. It was truly right in front of me. How many times have we looked right at something and not seen it? How many times have you looked at the scripture and not seen it? Heard the scripture and not heard it? For whatever reason, maybe you're just reading for the sake of reading. I've found this a lot lately because I have a course right now which one of my professors has given us gobs of reading to do. I almost want to confront him because he's an older professor. And I wonder if he knows how much, how much work he's given, you know. Maybe he's losing it. <laughs> he doesn't listen to me, so I'll say it. But I don't want to say anything because I don't want to sound like a wuss. You know, I don't want to say, hey, this is a bit much. But what it puts upon me is this time. You know, I have only so much time. And this course is like re so much reading. And I like, I'm find myself reading for just the sake of reading. But what I'm reading is scripture or commentaries about scripture. It's stuff that I really want to know. So if I don't get it done, I don't get it done. Big deal. But, you know, don't your, your judge, and I told myself this today, if this has any application and helps you, Corbin University and whatever that grade is going to be is not my ultimate judge, right? It's when I'm at the judgment seat of Christ. And I'm judged for what I've done. And to do the right thing, I've got to be looking in his mirror. I can't be rushing this. You can look right at something and not see it. How about, um, are you strong in the face of the storms of life? That's power. Are you strong? Could you put that slide back up, Alan? Oh, it is up for them. Yeah, that's cool. Um, that's power. Are you able, and Jesus said this, if you hear these words of mine and don't act upon them, you're a house built upon the sand. But if you hear these words of mine and act upon them, you're the house in the rock. Uh, do you worry about not having enough? Especially as inflation is coming, or coming, has come. Uh, that's There's no grace, right? You're not relying on God's grace. Jesus made wine. After they ran out, you know. Are you often fearful about what's coming? That's death. Do you despair in loneliness? That's divine love. Speaking of which, do you fail to reach out to others and just expect them always to reach out to you? That is unity in love. Why don't they reach out to me? Maybe you should reach out yourself. Do you evaluate yourself as not being enough so you lack consistent joy in your heart? You have the riches of heaven. The glory of Christ is the riches of heaven. Look. Look upon him. I say, well, if I look upon him, how is he going to cure my loneliness? Just do it. Because he promises. <laughs> I don't know exactly how he's going to do it, but I know he's going to do it. We can take every aspect of Christ's life and apply it to our daily lives. 
every aspect. So God convinces you to keep looking, even though you're looking at the most beautiful person in the world and your flaws are being revealed all along the way, but he convinces you that you're forgiven and he convinces you that you're called to be like Christ. And you get so occupied with this that you start to forget about yourself. It's actually one of, it's how C.S. Lewis defines spiritual maturity, is forgetting about yourself. Now, we also see this a mirror in James 1. Let's go to James 1. James 1, 21. And we see some parallels here between James and Paul's passage in 2 Corinthians 3 that we just read, the mirror of the glory of the word of uh, the glory of Christ. James says in 121, therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted which is able to deliver your souls. So let's say if he's talking to believers. He calls them brethren in 118. He calls them uh, redeemed. So he's talking to believers. It's not their eternal salvation he's after. He's after the deliverance of their souls unto the glory of Christ. So, but he says, but prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. And this becomes a theme in James. Right? James's letter is about this. James's letter is about what's going on in a person's heart. And that will express itself in a person's words and actions. James spends a lot of time here talking about how we speak. It's in this letter that the tongue is a, a flame of fire like a spark in a dry forest. It'll set the whole thing up. It's the little rudder on a ship that the ship could be huge, but this tiny little rudder moves it wherever it wants to go. And he says the tongue is a constant evil. But as Jesus said, what comes out of the mouth is what's the content of the heart. Then he said this to the Pharisees who were all worried about what they were putting into their bodies. He said it's not what you put into yourself that that condemns you. It's what comes out because what comes out comes out of the heart. So he says now, so prove yourself doers of the word, not just hearers. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, verse 23, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, abides by it. Not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. Because he's a doer of what he's seen. Now, uh, James doesn't use the word glory here, but he describes this looking, this intent looking as the perfect law of liberty. Right? And uh, Paul uses the exact word, same word, liberty, this freedom. Paul says it's a liberty by the Spirit. And James here calls it the liberty of the law. And we know that the true worshipers of God in this age worship him in spirit and in truth. And so we have both here. And so this mirror uh, is absolutely the same. Not that James and Paul sat down and thought up the, the analogy themselves. It's the inspiration of God, the Holy Spirit. And, you know, the, a mirror is a perfect image for this. So I look into the law of liberty, I look at which James here refers to as uh, the word of God, the revealed word of God, which is where I see the glory of Christ. And as I'm looking into that, I'm seeing the glory of Christ. But James here says you can look... And then look away. And what he describes that as is I heard it or I read it, but I didn't do it. So in one ear and out the other. And this, as we saw, when we looked at deception, this is what God said of Israel. He said, you have ears, but you don't hear. You have eyes, but you don't see. And uh, then... 
So if we're hearers and doers of the word, what are some results we'll see? Oh, I messed up my slides here pretty good. Bizarre. All right. So 2 Corinthians 4, 6, for, for God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Right? So now that's Paul's passage that we just left. That's chapter 4. We read in chapter 3 that we look intently at the perfect, uh, sorry, not that. In chapter 3, <coughs> we all with an unveiled face, <coughs> excuse me, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same glory from glory to glory. Then Paul says in chapter 4, light shines out of darkness. Well, when did God say that? Way back. In Genesis 1-3, way back at the beginning. Let there be light. And light shines. Now that one has shown in our hearts to give <coughs> the light of the knowledge of the glory of Christ. So it is a knowledge. So the mirror is a knowledge we get from the Word of God. It's a knowledge of Christ. And as James is perfectly here with Paul, as they're in sync with each other, as I look here, if I listen, and as the, um, you know, as God has convinced you to keep looking into this beautiful person, if you keep looking, you're going to be convinced that you have to do. <coughs> I mean, I don't know if I've ever met any Christian. I shouldn't say this, probably, because the, the moment you're born again and saved and you start hearing the Word of God, you need to do it. Don't wait. So I don't, I don't teach stages of spiritual growth. For one, that's one of the reasons I don't do it. It's because in my own heart, I'd say, well, I'm just a spiritual child, so I can't. not much is required of me. And then I spent a spiritual child for like decades because it was, you know, you know the reason. So, <clears throat> you know, don't wait. You need to do it now. Whatever you hear, do. You say, but I'll fail. You're no kidding. Exactly right. Fail away. Don't do it on purpose. But the, the longer you wait to do, the longer you're putting it off. And you may never get there. You may get so used to not doing that you'll never do. You just get used to it. And you say, you know what, this world in the flesh, it's good enough. You've just been lulled to sleep by, the, by Satan. This life has to be grab hold. So James, through God, really, is going to say, all right, you saw all your faults and sins. I put in over time. Thank God. You didn't bombard us all at once with everything that's wrong with you. Then he asks you, what are you going to do about it? And we'll say, well, wait a minute, God. You said you're going to do about it. And that's very true. But it's pretty obvious, I think, to us all that he doesn't force us to do. So there's got to be a me component in here somewhere. And I'm going to figure that out. So that, that's one of the things I'm going to do about it. I'm going to figure out what's my part in this. Where am I going to figure that out? Looking in the mirror. Look in the glory of Christ. I mean, didn't he go before us and live the same life? As a human, submitted himself to the Father, relied upon the Spirit and the Word. Did he do some stuff? He also did a lot of relying on the Father. But he didn't certainly sit on his hands and do nothing. So your faults, quick trip through James. Could take me a minute here. Look at 126. If anyone thinks himself to be religious, yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Gossiper. <laughs> Two nine. If you show partiality, you are committing sin and convicted by the law as transgressors. That's partiality to the rich over the poor. James two nine. James 2.14, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith and he has no works? You're going to see that in the mirror. i got a, a lot of knowledge in my head and I don't do anything. James 3.10, from the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brother, brethren, things, these things ought not to be this way. 
you're blessing God and cursing your neighbor from the same mouth. 3.14, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. Where are you going to find arrogance and jealousy and selfish ambition? Not in your bathroom mirror. In the mirror of the Word of God, you're going to see it in yourself. And you, know, you might think, oh, I'm not jealous. We keep studying. And some, maybe it's not jealousy or something else. But there's going to be something you say, oh, I'm not that. That's only because God has waited over time. He hasn't shown it to you yet, but it's there. He doesn't want to destroy you. And there's going to come a time where he's going to show. You're like, hmm, I didn't know I had that. I've been a believer for 50 years. How do I still have this? <laughs> you keep looking in the mirror of the Word of God. But he's going to say, look, don't turn away. I, I, you're my beloved. I love you. You're not condemned here. And you're forgiven. For two, you lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you don't ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives. If my prayer life is a zero, well, looking in the mirror of the Word of God, maybe you're asking with selfish motives. Maybe you think you have a prayer life and you really don't. So get one. Just do it. And prayer is coming up again. be coming up next week. Because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. These are just some. There are many. All the commands and exhortations in the scripture, they're, generally, they're, they're all generally true about us. Some of us have different weaknesses than others, but all of us have flaws. We're seeing the glory of Christ in the mirror of God's word, and we're turning away when we're ashamed or it hurts or we don't want to deal with it. And God tells us, I know you're ashamed. I know you don't want to deal with this. I know it hurts you. But don't turn away. I do not condemn you. You are my beloved. Look at me and learn from me. He's going to convince you that no matter what, even though your flesh is saying, do this, you're going to say no. Even though the world says, do this, you're going to say no because I am convinced, completely convinced that his way is far better. Not just a little bit better, but far better. Far better. There's happiness in his way. The way of the world is a little blip of happiness here and then misery and then another little blip and then misery and the blips get fewer and farther between and the misery grows and grows and grows until it completely overtakes you. And you're a believer in Christ, an heir, a son and a daughter of God, an heir in the family. And yet, your life is, oh, use James' word, it's dead. God is going to convince you to keep on looking at the most beautiful person in the world, even though he's going to show you all your flaws. And my last one on this, because it's our next verse. God is going to comfort and strengthen you all the way. He's not going to show you himself and then say, go get him, tiger. He's going to show you him himself and say, show you himself and say, let's go get him together. I don't know how I messed up my slides, but if we are hearers and doers of the word, what are some of the results that we will see? And um, that we'll see tomorrow. It is truly fascinating, though, in our world to see people seeking their own glory from other sources, seeking glory from other sources that is not Christ. They're seeking for things that they think are good, that are right, that are just, that are fulfilling, that are happy, that are going to give them happiness, that are beautiful. But none of that, none of that, beauty, happiness, contentment, goodness, justness, justice, not justness, righteousness is only all with Christ. Let's close in prayer with David. Let's pray. David prays, Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. 
Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in holy array. Be exalted above the heavens, O God. Let Your glory be above all the earth. My soul, wait in silence for God only. For my hope is in Him. He is my only rock and my salvation. My stronghold, and I shall not be shaken. On God my salvation and my glory rest. The rock of my strength, my refuge is in God. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. In Jesus' name, amen.